with clapping. The reason why a lot of people will get a little rhythm is uh, maybe because we have a little bit more rhythm. Uh, but think about the message that we were just talking about. Behold, he comes. He's coming again. And that's the, the theme for this Christmas season is going to be both Advents, the first coming and the second coming. So I'm looking forward to being able to lift up your countenance because that is one of the core fundamentals of the Christian faith, that our God is coming again. Looking forward to that without a doubt. If you'd open your Bibles, uh, we're doing a study right now in the book of Romans. Uh, and that is, there's a fourth point. If you'd like to pick one up, it's got an outline, a little bit of a, uh, an additional help for you to be able to study and to be able to talk about what's in the message. Uh, but I, we're going to be reverently attending to the public reading of God's word. Because if you bring the, the word cloud up, I always like to be able to tell you that we are uh, not ashamed. And that's part of our text today. We're not ashamed to be Bible-believing. Now, we may be out of vogue with culture. Certainly, it's not popular in the, Christian, or in, the, in the education movement to be able to say we are Bible-believing. Some folks, if you go down even to the school down the road here, some folks would tell you that you're not very scientific, you're not very educated, or they might even have some other adjectives that I don't want to say from the pulpit. Okay, because when, when you start teaching the Bible, if you start proclaiming the truth of Scripture, what does that tell you about their foundation if it's not Scripture? Is that they're not right. They're standing on the sand if we're standing on the rock. And normally folks don't want to stand on the sand that's going to collapse. They want to stand on their rock. And that's why a lot of times we are in, uh, in a conflict in this world. Now, we're Bible-believing, and that is our foundation. We stand upon that rock, and that will be proclaimed tonight about Holy Scriptures by Paul. You're going to be preaching only by Scripture tonight. Pretty neat. Uh, but our gospel message, which is the other point there, it's a good news. And that gospel message is about a person. It's about Jesus. And who's going to be preaching about Christ tonight? I think it's going to be Bryce. Bryce is going to be bringing the message about only by Christ. Uh, and then we're also going to be talking about faith. And uh, who's got, Matt Melson's going to be doing that one. And then we're going to talk about only by grace. That's going to be Tim. Uh, Tim was just telling me we have to have grace because some of the microphones aren't working right now. So praise the Lord when they do work. We have to have grace for only having one that works right now. Uh, but then we're also going to be focusing on only to the glory of God. And that one is going to be brought by a guy who's not so young. Is that right, Dave? Yeah, <laughs> our brother. Now, all five of these individuals have not been able to preach from the pulpit, so this will be an exciting time. If you're able to join us tonight, uh, you will truly be encouraged. It'll be a, a day to remember. I'm sure you'll remember it more than Charlie will remember it, but uh, probably not as much as all five of those guys will remember the first time when they proclaimed the word in church. Uh, but we're a Bible-believing church, gospel-driven, worship-cherishing, and that's why when we come into God's presence, that's what worship is, is to meet with God. And sometimes we see that spectrum of worship happening, and praise the Lord for all of us here. Now, if you turn in your Bibles, we're actually going to be reading uh, the text of Scripture. I want to begin in Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to start with verse 13. Expanding the text a little bit. We've been doing Romans in reverse, so now I'm actually taking you to the beginning. So let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals. Uh, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware. 
that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, when he talks about the Greeks and the barbarians, um, those, are, those are terms that uh, oftentimes we don't associate with. The whole idea of the Greeks is not just the folks that are from Greece or from Athens or Sparta or from that. Uh, everybody was a, a Greek speaker. So basically, when the Apostle Paul mentions Greeks, he is, he is talking about those, but he's talking about the whole Greek-speaking population, basically the secular world of his day. And then he adds even the barbarians. Now, in these days, the barbarians were the ones that were fighting the Roman Empire, and they were in the northern part uh, of Italy up into those other areas. Of course, that's where the Germans and some of the other Europeans come from. So he says, I am an under the obligation, basically by God, to preach to these people that are outside of the Jewish community. He says, whether they're wise or whether they're foolish. And now in verse 15 is where our text focuses. So I am grumpy. This is one of the emphasis I want to drive home. He's not grumpy about doing this. He says, I am excited. I am celebrating the opportunity. I am eager to proclaim or to preach the gospel to you, even in Italy there, in Rome. For I, and this is pretty neat, I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed of that gospel. For that gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, Jew or Greek or barbarian. And you can see it here. He goes on to say, to everyone who believes, to the Jew and even to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written in the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And then verse 18 goes on to say, For the wrath of that God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness will they suppress the truth. May God add his blessing to the word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that the Holy Spirit is in this place. We thank you that you have not just died and buried and rose again and went to heaven and left us alone, but your Spirit has given us uh, the ability to be comforted. Your spirit, according to Romans 8, speaks to our spirit, affirming to us that we're the children of God. That spirit also is working within us, perfecting the work that has been predestined, Romans 8, 28, uh, through the calling and through the justification and through the glorification. We are so grateful that all that, that you have called to yourself, you will lose none. Lord, we're thankful that this gospel is so amazing. And as we open up the book that explains a little bit more of it, I pray that you might open our eyes up. For as the Paul said that he wrote to the people in Rome and he didn't want them to be unaware or ignorant, I pray that we in this era, in 2021, would not be unaware or be ignorant of what God you have purposed for us to see. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, this is Reformation Sunday. It rarely falls on October 31st. Most of the time on October 31st, everybody's getting ready for candy and figuring out what costume you're going to wear. Now, some of you just put on that costume of a grumpy old man. And you wear it very well. Some of you put it on as, as somebody that's trying to be a princess. Or somebody that's trying to, uh, as, as we've done at some of our harvest parties, we pick on some of the Old Testament characters. 
I have to tell you, I'll never forget seeing Adam and Eve last year. I was so glad that they had had some fig leaves sewn together at that time, too. But, you know, Halloween is, is, is been captured by our culture. It's the eve of the hollow day. But nobody knows about the hallow day. They all know about the eve of the hallow day because we have done something in our culture, at least in America. I'm not sure if they do it all around the world, but the way it's marketed, it appears that it is. That everybody is a whole lot sweeter for Halloween. They're nice. I can tell you from my own experience, I have been able to talk to more people during Halloween night than I've ever talked to anybody in my neighborhood on any other day. Certainly, if you go to a homeowners association meeting, you don't really enjoy those. But man, when they're giving away candy and they smile at kids, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's almost like a church is supposed to be. By the way, that's a clue for some of you to bring candy, give it away. You know. Now, what I am trying to say, though, is that the Halloween has been hijacked. And in our culture, they don't ever think about the hollow day anymore. But the reason why the Halloween stuff tends to have all the, the ghosts and the ghouls and the, and the zombies and all the scary stuff, why? It's because on All Saints Day, which is the hollow day, is the day when people used to go to church and they used to think about what God had done in different people's lives. They remembered the saints of old and even the saints that were new. But instead of focusing on the saints, everybody wants to focus on the day before. Similar to Mardi Gras. The whole concept of Mardi Gras was that you had to get all your sin out before you had to be good and start your fast. And so when you ever... I've been down in some of the places, but I don't know what goes on during Mardi Gras except from a distance. But that idea, idea that people can be free to do whatever, have no boundaries, have no limitations... You just let it be. Everything is cool, man. And it's not. On Hollow's, Hollow's Eve, Martin Luther ends up convicted that he says, man, we've got to deal with these spiritual wickedness that's in this world. He's back there in the 1517s, 504 years ago. And when he was all stirred up on that day, on the 31st, he ends up going towards the church and he finds a door a little bit bigger than that. I don't know if you can see the picture of the actual door of Wittenberg. Yeah, that's the actual one. I've actually stood there. I remember as a youngster in my 20s, I was standing next to my dad and about 10 other godly men. All of them were pretty old. I was the only young buck. I remember the one preacher there said, God used one man to change the world in the 1500s, and he can use one man to change the world in the 2000s. Never forgot that. What happened back there in 1517, October 31st? Well, some people say it was the start of a revolution, but it was the start of the Reformation. Now, the Reformation is interesting, and I want to be able to deal with that and explain a little bit of that today, uh, but the idea of na nailing these questions on the door started a, a renaissance in people's minds. There was something new that was going on, and that is why they wanted to go back to the truth, and hence you get the reforming. And we're going to tackle that a little bit, but in some, I got an article this week given to me by one of the folks from the Soup Lunch crowd, a really interesting article from The Atlantic. It's not one of my favorite magazines. It's, uh, but this article was talking about the evangelical church is breaking apart. 
Christians must reclaim Jesus from his church. And it goes on in this multi-page sheet, almost like 12 pages. It goes on to be able to show how the, the evangelical church is, is fighting. It is at unrest. People are not uh, calm. There's not a unifying. There's not an ecumenical spirit. Everybody seems to be polarized. And as one of the preachers says, uh, there is, a, uh, there is a, a, uh, an anti-institutional tendency that makes evangelical communities more prone than others to insider abuse, to corruption committed by leaders who have, who have almost no guardrails. And also an outsiderism in which evangelicals simply refuse to let their church form them or their beliefs. It's really interesting that they're talking about the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is that the church is no longer the influencer. The church no longer determines things. Elsewhere in the article, they quote some other preacher guys who are basically saying that folks are leaving churches today, not because of COVID, but because their church doesn't match up with their politics. Now, it's kind of interesting. I was just going through my, uh, my boxes and boxes of papers that I've accumulated over the decade I've been here. I ran across a, a resignation letter from a, a young man who came to this church and wrote an eloquent letter saying that this church was too political. Sometimes I think we're, we don't have a very sharp edge because there's a lot of folks here that are not influenced to be able to even see through some of the evils in our, in our era. And some of you are willing to turn a blind eye to the bad and say it's okay. And you can't. Jesus cannot tell folks to say, well, oh, well, it doesn't matter if you sin or if you don't sin. You know, that's the whole reason why the book of Romans explains a lot. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, shall we continue in sin? And the answer is, meganoite, may it never be. You see, we can't give room to evil. But how do we get along when many of us think that some of the evil things that you're doing are some of the evil things I'm doing? And so in chapter 14 and 15 of Romans, he starts to deal with it. And we'll get into that in a moment. But in this particular article, the idea of the church breaking up is really interesting that it's on Reformation Sunday that it came to my attention. Should the church of Jesus Christ polarize? Should we all become everybody independent? Is that your goal? Is that what you love? That everybody just isolates? Almost like you can quarantine in your own home. You can have your own church. You can have everything the way you want it. See, that's not what happened in the Reformation. And the reason I can tell you that is because of our text today. So let me take you to our text and read it to you one more time. If you have it there in Romans chapter 1, uh, when he says in verse 16... Or first 15 and 16. I am eager to preach the good news of the gospel to you. And then in verse 16. I am not ashamed of that gospel. For it is the dunamis of God. It is the power. It is the foundation for a great salvation to everyone who gets it. To everyone who's a believer. And it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish and you grow up with that culture or whether you're not Jewish. If you get the gospel. You see, that's the difference. The church of Jesus Christ does not need to be liberated uh, by, from Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to rescue it. He's already said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not thwart its advance. It will prevail. 
But the sad thing is, not all that are in, uh, not all that are in the church are the church. But you know what? That's what we expect. Why do I preach the gospel every Sunday to people that I see almost every Sunday? Think about that for a moment. Because I'm one of the people that hears it. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel, and that's why our mantra or our vision statement, we, we, uh, we communicate the gospel by our words, deeds, and passions to ourselves first, and then to the people that we run into in this community, in this region, and then to the world with the help of missionaries and, and vacations and snowbird trips and all that kind of stuff. We communicate the gospel even as the, God, the world comes to us if they ever get the J-1 visas back. And we'll be able to share the good news that it might go to the ends of the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, our text today talks about this great gospel, but if you see in verse 17, which is where I wanted to end up, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's the key word, the revelation, the revealing. It's revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in the Old Testament scriptures, the righteous one shall live by faith alone. Wow. And then he just goes on to explain how this gospel also tells us that the wrath of God is also revealed uh, and it's coming down from God in heaven and it comes down to us here on this earth where there's a lot of ungodliness and a lot of men, and I should add women, that are unrighteous who are suppressing the truth. Now, having said that, this message is all about the revelation of God. And if you're following along with the three points, uh, first is going to be the revelation of more of the content of the message of the gospel. And secondly, it's going to be the revelation of more of the character of our God. And third is the revelation of more of the change in our lives. When you look at this particular text, you are going to see that it is the cornerstone of this magnum opus, this epistle of Rome to Rome. It's an amazing book. It's like you can read it and you can read it and you can read it and you can read it again and you'll always find new stuff every time you read it. God has really given us a jewel, a gem. He's given us a meal that we can't exhaust. You can almost like a smorgasbord, keep going back and you can always fill your plate and there's always going to be more to fill your plate. Now when you're following along and thinking about this particular text, I am amazed I'm amazed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I'm so glad that once you get it, you'll join the apostle and say, you're not ashamed too. You're not ashamed to stand with Paul. You're not ashamed to stand next to the door at Wittenberg with Luther. You're not ashamed to stand, even if it's all by yourself. So help you God. Uh, it's really kind of fascinating to me when I understand the whole concept of the, uh, I told you about the Reformation. In order to have a Reformation, you have to have something already there. The word Reformation starts with an R-E, which means again. So there was a form that was there. Now, in order to reform it, you have to acknowledge there was a form. And that's often what we say in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was formulated uh, and it was put together with the Trinitarian thing, with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the church, uh, and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. All of that was within the first two centuries since Jesus ascended to heaven. They came together and said, these are the core things, we hang on to them. But that form, that thing that united the people of God, ended up being polluted or broken. 
The form was broken, and uh, the church had broken it. There had been pollution of practices, a corruption of conscience, a dilution of the truth, and a magnificence of the pageantry. Now, what I'm talking about is the church that we often call the Catholic Church. I'm not trying to say that it was all bad. But if you, uh, if you pollute something, it's like if you have a glass of water and you put some dirt in it, do you want to drink it? Well, you probably will if you're thirsty, but if you put poison in it, would you want to drink it? You see, the whole idea here is sometimes it gets so bad that it actually destroys the very thing that it's supposed to preserve. It's like, uh, it's like we, uh, we were at the beach the other day and, and uh, we had this, uh, my son's dog was with us, and the dog went down to the ocean to get a drink of water. And of course, what do you tell the dog? Don't do it! But it looks like water. I mean, it obviously doesn't taste quite the same as the regular water. But you know what I'm talking about. And this is what was happening, is that the church of Jesus Christ, over the years, had lost its form, and it became salty like salt water, and it wouldn't assuage your thirst for the gospel. They had brought different things into it. Uh, I, I was thinking of that Brita commercial, you know, where you can pour water through that filter, and of course it's trying to get down to zero, that there's nothing more there. Well, that's in a sense what the Reformation was trying to do. And that's why when we come together tonight and we say only by Christ, only according to Scripture, only by faith, only by grace, the, the things that we're telling you is that that's pure. There's no, there's no contaminants. There's nothing that's been added. Because back in the day, there were some things that were added. I'm telling you, the initial church form was not so bad. They loved the Bible so much, they used to chain it up in the, in the big sanctuaries. They didn't want anybody to steal it. They wanted to have at least one copy. And usually the pastor was the only one that could read it in the Latin Vulgate. People were dependent upon the clergy at that time. And they, they loved the clergy, and the clergy loved having that because they really didn't have much wealth otherwise. Everybody that was associated with the church, they didn't have nice villas and all that kind of stuff. That came a little bit later. They loved the sanctuary. How many of you have been to a cathedral? I mean, I know the president finally went to church because they told us that he went to St. You know, uh, Peter's, I guess. Uh, he went to the Vatican this past week. But when you go to some of these awesome cathedrals, I'm telling you, they're awesome. When you get to see the Sistine Chapel and with all the paintings on it, when, when I've stood in some of these other places, even when I went to the, to the church over in Moscow, uh, it was back in 1991, and it was where we had communion. I, I never will forget it because they actually had real wine being uh, in a chalice. And they used to pass it down the aisle. I think I've told you the story. The stuff that was in that chalice, nothing could live in it. No fear of getting germs. But I'll never forget the magnificence even of that church that had been built in the Soviet Union. They loved the cradle to the grave grip that they had on life. If you go back, and those of you that are familiar with the Catholic Church, they wanted to make sure that when you come into this world, the church has some fingerprints on you. Well, usually they want holy water on you rather than fingerprints. But then they want to hang on to you throughout your whole life so that when finally you're going to die or when you're just about to breathe your last, what do they want? Don't say money, although I'm sure they'll take it. They want that thing called last rites. They want one of the last things for you to do is to have a clergy with you. So from the beginning to the end, the church wants to have a connection to your life. And you know what? That's wonderful. 
Baptism, last rites, repentant booths, food for spiritual nourishment. I mean, they wanted to give you the mass every time you would come. Some churches, even today, in that vein, they'll still tell you to come at, at 8 o'clock in the morning and you can still get it every day. Even down to your finances. They'll help take care of that investment in the kingdom. History tells us that reform was necessary. And back in those dark ages that almost every historian will tell you, it was during an era in the, you know, from the 1000s to the 1500s, uh, this was not an era of opulence. This was not an era of communication. I mean, nobody had 5G back then. They didn't even have phones. I mean, when Christopher Columbus was sailing the ocean blue, I mean, when he went off, nobody knew if he was ever coming back. And the only reason we remember is that somebody made a song about it in 1492. What I'm trying to tell you is that it was a different era, but the church had been diluted. It had been polluted. It had been corrupted. And it had been seduced. And this is where the reforms came in. It was ripe for reform. The people that ended up leaving the church were called reformers. Some of them tried to stay in the church, like Luther didn't want to leave the church but couldn't stay because they were going to kill him if he did. Uh, so, but he wanted to stay with the church. Then there were others who wanted to leave that corrupt church and start their own denominations. Uh, and then, but there were some who stayed in the church as Catholics, and they had what they called the Counter-Reformation. So, and then the, the truth be told is that everybody was starting to change. And part of this was because of the Renaissance. Part of this is because of the, uh, the regeneration or recovery or the resurgence or the renewal of information. If you think back in those times, part of the reason why the Reformation, uh, God blessed it like he did, was that there was a, a press called the Gutenberg Press who would take Martin Luther's comments and copy them since they didn't have a Xerox machine. And this is how people that lived in different areas were able to read. And so reading became something so much more significant. That's one of the reasons why we want to train our children how to read, so they can read the Bible for themselves. Okay? And so the whole idea of education started to really blossom. And this is the changes that were taking place. But I want you to know that the change that took place within the church in the Reformation movement, uh, Luther was one of the stars of that Reformation. And it, it was Romans chapter 1, verse 17 that really changed him. The just shall live by faith. Well, most of us would say, so what? It changed everything. Because this was beginning to reveal the corruption that had already gotten into the church. And he says, no, we can't stand with the corruption. And so what ends up finding in this particular passage where he says the just shall live by faith, you understand it based, number one, on the content of the message. Paul says here, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, so I'm going to preach to you the gospel, verse 15. I'm not ashamed of that good news. The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, and the eu means the you, and the angelion is the root word of angel. So it's the good message. And Paul is saying, I've got a message, and I want to be able to tell you more about it. I want to give you more content about this message. Now, interesting about this message is that it has been, uh, it has been a precious message. 
And he says it's so precious that he's not ashamed of it at all. And so he was revealing this message that was once veiled. How do we know it was once veiled? Because if you open your Bibles up to the end of uh, the, the benediction there in Romans chapter 16, you're going to see that the, the uh, text ends up telling us that it was a mystery. Verse 25 of chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery... ...that had been kept secret for long ages. Now, this is the message that Paul says I'm not ashamed of. It was something that people didn't have all the puzzle pieces... ...to be able to put it all together. It was almost like it was hidden behind the veil. For those of you that cherish the Wizard of Oz... ...it was behind the curtain. Okay, the, All of this was out there, but people could see it. They were blind to what, what was already there. Even Jesus demonstrated it very well when he walked on earth. Remember, he spoke in parables... When he spoke a parable, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, guess what was interesting about it? Is that everybody heard the same words, but only a few got to see what they meant. It was hidden in plain sight. And that's why when the Holy Spirit brings to recollection the things that were taught by Jesus, we end up seeing so much more that at the time people didn't quite see. They saw the son of Joseph. They saw the son of a carpenter. They saw the guy who came from Nazareth. And they couldn't believe that anything good can come from Nazareth. And then they see this plain guy who didn't even have a nice house. He didn't have a bed to sleep on. And he didn't even have maids. He didn't have a lot of riches and wealth. They just saw the simple guy. As Isaiah put it in chapter 53, there was no form of comeliness. And, and, and when you would see him, there was no beauty that you would desire him. There was nothing special that you could see from his appearance. But boy, when flesh and blood would reveal to you who this Jesus was, like, like Simon Peter in chapter 16 of Matthew, uh, you are the Christ. You're God the Son. That's when, when the, ain't the uh, Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him. And the voice of the Father said, this is my son. Listen to him. It's pretty amazing when you realize that this gospel message has been hidden. Even though Jesus was right there in plain sight, people didn't get it. And that's why so many of them could shout just a matter of a, of a few 20, 30 years earlier, crucify that guy, crucify him, crucify. They didn't see the good news in Jesus. Many of them were let down. They had created a gospel that was going to take over from the government. They didn't want any more tyranny. They wanted to be able to worship and be left alone. They wanted their families to not have to pay extra taxes. They didn't want to be made fun of by the majority population. They wanted to cherish what they had. You see, do you, do you relate to any of this? And then when you realize that this gospel message that Paul says, I'm not afraid of, because now it's being revealed. It's been spoken of by the prophets, but now it's been manifest in these last days. It's almost like God shined a spotlight on it. And, and the way he did was he raised up some people. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 said that he gifted apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists to be able to speak up and to tell the truth. And then they were going to empower the saints to go into all the world, Romans or Acts 1.8, to go not only in your own community, but also in your region, all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the power of God, the Holy Spirit, was going to work through you with the gospel message. The power of God unto salvation is this message. The content of this message is being revealed. And the more that the Apostle Paul learned about it, the more he was singing 
amazing grace. How sweet the sound. There's a lot of people today that don't know the content of the gospel. They haven't listened to the whole content. They don't know the substance in that message called the hope of glory. I want to encourage you that when we study the book of Romans, which we have, you're going to see that Paul has been wanting to tell us more and more. Uh, God has been revealing this incrementally in John, Genesis 3. Uh, all the way, 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 way back there, Genesis 3.15. He says, there's going, to be a good, there's going to be a baby born, born of a woman. At that time, they didn't even know what pregnancy was. And God says, I'm going to do it. I've already got a plan. And when you realize that that baby finally came in Galatians 4.4, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he says, in, the, in God's time, it was at the appointed time. It was exactly at the right moment. If you go to Revelation 12, I believe it was the cosmic alarm clock going off. All the stars literally lined up. It's pretty amazing. And that's what's true by the, the account from Luke when he said that the, the wise men made their journey from the east following the stars. I mean, all of this stuff is exactly according to God's plan. And Paul is saying, I'm going to give you more content of that message because God has commissioned me to reveal it. Boy, it makes you want to read the book of Romans, doesn't it? Now, if you look at the second point here, the revelation of more of the character of God, verses 17 and 18. If you have your Bibles open, you can clearly see it in, in Romans 17 and 18. Uh, this is where those particular verses flow off of our lips. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. And then the next verse says, and the wrath of God is revealed. Now, this tells us a little bit more about God. Do you know a lot about God? If we were to, um, to, to try to just grab everybody within a mile, of, a, a mile from the church right now, would there be people around within a mile that know God better than you? Okay, let's just assume that you're the only one in the church right now, not just saying all oh, the elders or the pastor, all this kind of stuff. Uh, when you look around the, 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 the area, are there many people that know God? Let's see, how would we know if they know God? Well, maybe you can help me. How would you know if somebody else knows God? They would talk about him. By their love. That's interesting. That's a good answer. Talking about him is a good answer. Would you think that some of them might be in church? Why would they go to church? Part of it, what they love. <laughs> but maybe because they want to know more about them. Now, the whole point I'm trying to make is that when you look around, and if you go to a restaurant afterwards, you're going to find a lot of people that are out there that say they know God, but they don't know much about God. They really don't. And the sad thing, if I were to ask you to write something about God, what do you know about God? How much have you studied God? How much have you communed with God? How much have you been at peace with God. There was a few people that had a cancer diagnosis of late. When you get that dose of mortality, a lot of times your intimacy with God gets a little tighter. Sometimes you realize, hey, I'm actually going to come home to be with you. 
Most of us, we live like there is no, there's no end. We live like the days of Noah when you eat and drink and be merry because that's all there is. Tomorrow we do it again. Eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. And tomorrow we eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. When people were in Noah's day, they were living as if there was no God. They might have been aware that there was a God. Obviously, there was one preacher man named Noah that said every day, there's a God. There's a dangerous God. Can you imagine what his message was? You know, he wasn't preaching Jonathan Edwards' message with, a, with a, you know, somebody dangling over a boiling cauldron of hot stuff, just like on your, by a spider's web, ready to drop in and be, be whatever you're going to be in a hot cauldron. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I was just doing a little research on that one, and I, had to, I, I was pretty fascinated in the book of Amos, uh, Amos chapter 2. It brought up some of the, the, the or chapter 9, if I have that text there. It says, uh, this is what God said. This is the text that, that Jonathan Edwards preached. He said, if they dig into Shoal, uh, from there my hand shall take them. And if they climb up to heaven, if you keep going, from there I will bring them down. And if there's one more verse on there, if they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and I will take them. Okay? And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, in other words, they find a submarine, they, there, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. What a text. Just had to read that for you today. Now, this is, con this is consistent with our text where it says uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that we're going to reveal this righteous God. Because it, this is a God of righteousness. This is all about God. And so we're learning a little bit more about this great God who is a righteous God. As I say from the catechism, God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being are wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. I mean, when you realize all those things about God, he is righteous. And Exodus 34, 7 says, he will by no means let people off the hook. He will by no means clear the guilty. God is going to be punishing sin Whew. so here we have the revelation of a god of righteousness and the way this righteousness works is in verse 18 if you have that up there verse 18 is very interesting where he says that this righteous god does something that people don't like to hear in fact there's a lot of people even in our community that never want to read romans chapter 1 verse 18 and following they'd like to skip over that they don't mind, obviously, doing some righteous things from chapter 12 on. But they don't like the theology that says that there's wrath from that God, of, that's a righteous God, and it's coming, it's being revealed, it's being made known. We're learning about a God who is holy, holy, holy. We like to sing about holiness, but we don't like to sing about wrath. This is pretty scary stuff. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed to tell you about this righteous God. Who is going to punish sin. The wrath of God is being poured out against mankind. It's coming if it already hasn't gotten here. It's coming. And he says people suppress the truth. And if you go on to the rest of Romans chapter 1, you're going to see that they have come up with alternatives to the truth. They substitute their ideas for God's word. And this is why you have uh, the need for a reformation again today. We need to go back to the Bible. And not lean on our own understanding. When you understand or when you see this particular text that, that this amazing God is going to judge sin. Man, 
I also want to be able to tell you that this amazing God has a way of salvation. If you go back to the benediction at the end, Romans chapter 16, verse 27. When Paul finally finishes all of his magnum opus, he gets to the end, last verse, to the only wise God. Yep, that righteous God. That God who has wrath against unrighteousness. That God who is pouring it out upon all kinds of people on this earth. He says, that's the God who should be glorified for all eternity, forever and forever, because of Jesus Christ. Now, the righteousness of God doesn't get eliminated because of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God gets confirmed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He is the righteousness of, of God. He kept the law, so he was the one that performed doing all the duties. He was the only one who was righteous that was born of a woman. The only one. That's why we always say that of ordinary generation, he's the only one that didn't deserve hell. Even my little granddaughter, Charlie, she deserves to go to the bad place. She was not born pure. There's no holy water that would wash away original sin. All of that is a hoax. When you're born in sins and trespasses, you're under the wrath of God. Romans 8 or Romans 5, he says, but the wages of sin is death, separation from God's grace, being cut off. Now, do you see how the revelation of the message is always going to be linked to the revelation of God? And God is so holy and wise, it's so amazing that he could be a holy God and still offer this great salvation. That we could sing like the days of Elijah, the days of Ezekiel. We could sing of all those days because we know he's coming in love. Because the God of righteousness has already provided a righteous remedy. He is going to punish every sin. Can you think of the sin that you did today? Maybe I should make it easier. The sin that you're thinking right now. Okay? What is it? Are you angry? Are you looking at your clock? Are you thinking that we're too long? Are you saying this is too full of a day? Are you can't believe that I'm having Dave Linden preach the final part of the sermon at the, at the thing? Or you can't believe that Bryce is going to open up the service? I don't know what your thought's going through your head. Are you content or are you malcontent? You see, when you get captured by God, when the revealing about this righteous God comes before your eyes of faith, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his great salvation. That's why the third point of this message is about the the revelation of the change, of more of the change in our lives. If you look in verse 15 and verse 17, I want to be able to read those again for you to be able to see it clearly. In verse 15, for I am eager to preach the gospel. Now, notice the pronoun I. Who's talking here? We're talking about a guy named Paul. Did any of you know him uh, as Saul? Well, if you did, you were, uh, must be pretty old. Okay, the Bible does tell us that, that he had a former alias, and that alias was Saul of Tarsus. And that means he was Saul from southern Turkey. He was from a Jewish community. Uh, his dad was, was um, not a believer, but his mom apparently was. And so uh, they ended up scra scraping some money together, and they got Paul, this smart guy. I think God blessed him with some intelligence. Don't you think so? Okay, but he's, he had him go down to Jerusalem to be trained by one of the famous teachers named Gamaliel. I think he was about 10 years younger than, than Jesus. 
So he was a whippersnapper next to Jesus. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, probably at the age of 33, Paul was probably there at the age of about 23. So yes, he's a young guy. When you, when you realize that Paul, his, uh, he's got quite the experience. He was so zealous in these days when Jesus had died and was buried, and he had such, such favor with the Roman people and even with the, uh, uh, with the religious leaders of that day. Everybody wanted to get peace back in the country, and they wanted to get everyone who was talking about this Jesus character to be silenced. They wanted cancel culture, and they were willing to cancel you, not by taking you off of social media, but by taking you off this planet. The Apostle Paul was so serious and so successful before he became an apostle, he was an apostle of Satan to go ahead and test everyone. Do you believe this or do you not? The changed life is to see his change. The apostle Paul, who used to hate the name of Jesus, is now saying, I am not ashamed of that name I'm not ashamed of anything that he's associated with. I, I remember when I met Jesus, and, and I can take you to Acts chapter 9 and tell you the story. He, he could probably tell it to you a little better than I could because he was there. But Luke records the eyewitness account. And he says, man, when, when, when I was on my way to Damascus to, to make sure that those people who said that they were a part of the way that Jesus talked about, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Paul was trying to erase them. And saw as he went up there on the way to Damascus, Paul would have said, man, I was doing my best. I was ready. I was fit and trim. I had all this energy, all this zeal. I was going to purge all of this population of people who had bad ideas. It almost sounds like he could have been a part of the Justice Department and labeled everybody a domestic terrorist if they knew about Jesus and promoted Jesus. Now, if you think about it this for me, Paul met Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Sometimes I might phrase it this way. Who are you, Lord? To meet Jesus. The revelation of the righteous one came on that Acts 9 experience. We often say he was knocked off his high horse. He was brought down to understand that salvation was by grace through faith. It was not by performance. The apostle was recognizing all of this and he was put down, down, down. Nobody wanted to be around that guy anymore after he met Jesus. It's almost like he had B.O. or something. He was isolated in some area and he's praying. And I'm telling you that all the associates that had ridden up to, 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 uh, to Syria, to Damascus, they all abandoned him. You're a kook, you're a nut, you're seeing visions, you're crazy. But the Christians wouldn't want to have anything to do with him either because they know he was conniving, manipulative, and zealous. He had a track record of taking people down. And if it wasn't for God's spirit speaking to another Ananias, he said, I got one. I got one. He's, he's going to know what it feels like to suffer. What he's done to people, I'm going to teach him some of those things. He's going to understand what I went through a little bit when I went to Calvary's cross. And so when the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed, he knows who Jesus is, the righteous one. And you can see the change in his life. He wants to share it. He's eager to do. And that's where it says in verse 15, I'm eager to preach this good news. I'm, I'm eager to go anywhere. I'm eager to, to sacrifice. I'm, I'm eager to do without. I'm eager to do whatever he bids me to do. What a change in his life. I'm telling you that when, you've, when you finally grasp this whole idea about the power of transformation, 
then you can realize if you turn to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you can see why when Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you too would be changed by this gospel. I beg of you, in light of what God has done to change your world, that the righteous God has poured out his wrath, and not on you, but on his only begotten son. I beg of you, brothers and sisters, that your lives would be different. Now, intellectually, he's teaching. Theologically, it's already happening. For people to be able to get to Romans 12, chapter 1 and 2, and I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by God's mercies, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is your duty. Don't be like this world. Don't conform. Don't conform. This is Reformation Sunday, and that's why I want to draw this point out. Don't conform. Don't just be like everybody else. Okay, why not? Pastor, we should just do what the, the government tells us, right? Right? We should just conform. Oh, some of you are squirming. Why would the Apostle Paul tell us to don't be like the world? And I'll tell you why. Because the world is not following God. The world is not pursuing righteousness. The world is pursuing its own heaven. And it's not the one that he's gone to prepare a place. It's one that they're doing of their own making. In our day and age, they call some of that global warming. And some of it call that the in Noah's day, it was they just want to eat, drink, and be merry. They just want to have a fun time. They want life to be a beach. When you ponder, when you ponder what's going on in the text, the transformation is the only solution. Transformation and reformation are, are, I'm saying they're synonymous in the sense that transforming you is taking you from the sinner that you are to the saint that you are. That God is doing a work to to, to do about a, um, some people would call it an about face. You know, because it's this way, this way, this way, but then it's an about face. That's what repentance is. You know, there's multiple other terms where you talk about conversion or you talk about regeneration, where somebody was dead and now they're alive. Where you talk about conversion. Somebody used to do this, but now they want to do this. And repentance is when they actually see the evil of their way and say, no more, I'm going to do the exact opposite. All of these things are transformative. Now, how do you transform? I loved it during Bible school this year. We had the last day talking about butterflies. I was so impacted by that, and I appreciated uh, the elder just giving me a video of more than an hour and a half about the transformation of how this caterpillar that looks like a ooey-gooey stuff goes into this little cocoon thing underneath one of those milk milkweed plants, okay, um, and then... Voila! It comes out looking beautiful. And it comes out being able to fly. And he can't even fly to Mexico. I don't know if you knew that. But every fourth generation, the group will fly down there and fill up some of the hills there. And it is so picturesque when you see millions and millions of butterflies that go down there to hibernate. It's just amazing. But the transformation is, is not simply that we become something that we're not. No, actually, when God made us, he ordained it that we would be made like him. But we're still us. 
And the beautiful thing about this transformation, which you find out in this whole text of Romans, the magnus opus, is that God is going to take you from the sinner that you were, where you once followed your, the, the sinfulness of your own thoughts, where you worshiped the creation rather than the creator, where you ended up yielding to the appetites of your own flesh, sexually, uh, financially, all these other things that you just pursued because it felt good, because it was desirable, because just like Eve, you wanted to. The transformation is that he starts a good work in you, Philippians 1.6. Has he started a good work in you? The way you can tell if he's working in you, and I'm going to be preaching on that in the next few weeks about the work of Christ from, from Romans chapter 14, but the, the way you can tell he starts working in you is that you have a valuation of the scriptures. When you hear the word of God, you may hate them, but you know they're true. When I say, thou shalt not steal, and you want to still steal? You're taking that up against him, against the righteous God. If I just say, leave it alone, that's not quite the same. You see, when we realize the truth and the veracity of Scripture, God is already proving that he's opened up our blind eyes. Now we can see. Now, we may not be able to see very much. That's why I like to use the analogy of the helicopter view. The helicopter view of faith is that if you're, if you're hovering just a foot off the ground, you're not much different than if you're on the ground. But if you're 100 feet up, it's different. If you're 1,000 feet up, it's a whole lot different. You can see a whole lot more. And I talk about spiritual maturity is when God gives you the eyes and he removes the blurriness and you're able to see so much more of who this, who this great righteous God is and what this wonderful great message is. That's why I finish with this. Luther, on October 31st, 1517, went up to the door. He didn't just do this. Let me in, let me in. No. Luther was not one of those people that was searching. He wasn't trying to follow. He had already tried that. He had done everything the church told him to do. The church told him to make a pilgrimage to Rome. The church told him to give a lot of money. The church told him to give up his life, to give up his livelihood. The church told him to study the, the, the books. The church told him to teach. The church told him to do a lot of things. Uh, I'm telling you, Luther tried them all. When Luther came to the door that day, it wasn't to try something new, but it was to ask better questions. He took some of these things, sola dea gloria, and he puts it up there, and he doesn't put it up in the Latin terms, but he starts asking questions about repentance, about Jesus, about faith. And so if you could just picture him, he's putting these up here. I'm hoping this door won't fall down. Now, each one of these things that he is nailing to the door at Wittenberg Church. Sola gratia. That almost stayed. <laughs> almost stuck. The question for me, is it sticking with you? You see, the salvation message that's in the book of Romans is so pure. It has a zero of any kind of contaminants. It is absolutely 100% from God. When you have lived your life, no doubt you have been tempted to add or to take away. To do the things that your folks did or to neglect doing things that, others haven't, that you haven't seen before. 
There's always this tendency in this world to be able to, well, that's what I think we ought to do. I want to challenge you, and we get to this in the next week's text in Romans 14. How do we live in harmony with one another when some people think that this is of faith and other people think this is of faith and they're in contradiction? You see that initial article that I have about the evangelical church breaking apart. It only breaks apart if your eyes leave Christ. I've stood at the, I've been right there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. We've been on one of those boat tours. And when you're out there in the middle of that little tiny sea, it's only seven miles by 12 miles. It's really tiny. But there we were in the middle and I was leading a devotional thing and we were talking about Peter walking on the water. How many of you would step out of a boat? <laughs> Do you really believe that if Jesus told you to come, that you wouldn't sink? That's the wrong question. This is why we're so easily deceived. Peter wasn't asked if he was going to sink. Peter didn't have to know all the science and the physics. What did Peter get asked to do? Come. And he came. And when his eyes started to be focused on the world, when he started noticing that you're not supposed to be able to walk on water, and when he saw the wind and he saw the waves, and he probably felt some of the splash of that salt water, he got to feel it all. And at that point, he cried out to Jesus, save me. I don't want any of you to drown. But Paul was not ashamed of this great gospel message. This is from God, about a righteous God, who found a way to get righteousness to sinful men, to change your life, not by your performance, but by his imputing it to you. And once he's changed your life, the life that you now live, you live by faith, through faith. The just always live by faith alone. That's the Reformation. That's the good news. There's so many people out here that have a little bit of the gospel. If we put the Brita water filter on their gospel presentation, it's not 100% pure. Is your presentation pure? I would like you to confess and, and let go of your earthly traditions. A big part of the Reformation was to, to stop equating tradition with revelation. They stopped doing it. And as a result, the gospel message was pure again. And even though it was tainted with different people liking this and this, they, they, it was un, unadulterated that the righteousness of God was finally satisfied with the propitiation of sin, Romans 3.25. I'm going to finish with that, but I just want to encourage you guys. Reformation is something you want in the 21st century, not just in the 16th century. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the good news that we find in the scripture. We thank you for the magnum opus of the book of Romans. And I pray that as we study the book, as we look into it, I pray that we will run towards you, that we will not run away from you. And I also pray, O oh Lord, that as we ponder these things, that we will be amazed at this great salvation, that, we will, that we'll just almost like bathe in it, that we'll just treasure it, that our lives truly will be transformed. May we be a, a little bit like the apostle who is saying, I am now eager. I am not ashamed one bit about Jesus Christ because he's my savior. And it's his name, his name I pray. Amen.